You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Phalanxes of Atlans by F. V. W. Mason. Chapter 2. No less amazed and alarmed than those vanished soldiers, Nelson remained rooted to the ground, conscious that in the swallow's nest overhead there remained only the officer, a tall, broad-shouldered man with golden beard showing from under the cheek-pieces of his helmet. Across the body of the still-writhing monster their glances met. Nelson could see by the light of those strange pillars of fire that the other's eyes were blue as any Norseman's. Leaning far out over the stone parapet, the other stared down upon the aviator from the depths of his jeweled helmet, in a strange mixture of curiosity and awe. Suddenly Nelson's nerves snapped, and he shook a trembling fist at the martial figure above. "'Go away!' he shrieked, and reeled back on the edge of collapse. "'Go away, you damn phantom! You're driving me crazy! Crazy, I tell you!' The other stiffened, then turned, and, uttering a hoarse shout, vanished leaving the noiseless and apparently heatless pillar of fire flaring steadily. Recovering somewhat, Nelson set his teeth, advanced to the nearest corpse, stooped and regarded him who lay there, with bronze helmet fallen off. "'It's a man, and not a ghost,' he murmured, as his finger encountered flesh that was still warm. "'Red-headed, too, or I'm a liar. Now what in hell is all this?' For all his bewilderment he began to feel better, and his swaying reason became steadier. Bronze, bronze, nothing but bronze, the aviator told himself as he further examined the scattered equipment. Evidently these fellows don't know the use of iron or steel. With increased curiosity he bent over another splendidly built dead man who lay with back broken and sightless eyes staring fixedly onto the steam current meandering silently along the cavern's roof. From the fallen man's belt were slung half a dozen curious weapons that looked not unlike potato mashers except that they were bronze-headed and had wooden handles. Hm, he commented. Kind of like the grenades the Bosch used and the late lamented. Wonder what the devil these are. Suddenly his ear detected the sound of a footstep, and on looking swiftly up he beheld that same yellow-bearded officer who had directed the attack. This strange being had taken off his ponderous helmet to carry it in his left hand, while his right was held vertically in the immemorial sign of peace. On he came with powerful martial strides, a brilliant green cloak flapping gently behind him, and the jewels in his brazen armor glinting like so many tiny-colored eyes. The stranger was indeed handsome, Nelson noticed, and then he received perhaps the greatest shock of the whole chimerical adventure. The gold-bearded man halted some twenty feet away, smiled, and spoke in a curiously inflected but perfectly recognizable voice. Welcome to the Empire of the Atlans. Prithee, wanderer, what be thy name? For a long moment Nelson was entirely too taken aback to make a reply. Desperately his already perplexed brain tried to comprehend. Here was a handsome six-footer, dressed in the arms of an ancient race, speaking English of the seventeenth century. As at a phantom he regarded the stalwart, faintly ominous figure from heavy leather sandals to bronze greaves thence to wide belt from which dangled more of those curious grenade-like objects. His glance paused on the officer's beautifully wrought bronze cuirass, or breastplate, which showed in relief an emerald-scaled dolphin and trident. These, Nelson decided, must be the national emblems of this incomprehensible nation. Then their eyes met. 
held each other a long moment until the tall officer's features, disfigured by a long red scar across the jaw, broke into a hard smile. "'Hero Giles Hudson begs thy pardon,' he said. "'But methought thou spoken the language of Sir Henry Hudson, my ancestor?' "'Sir Henry Hudson,' stammered Nelson incredulously, "'the old explorer whose men turned him adrift. "'So that's why you're talking embalmed English.' "'In desperation his weary brain strove to understand. "'I know not,' replied the other with a grave smile, "'save that the founder of our royal line spoke what he called English. "'He came from the ice-world to rule wisely over Atlans. "'He was the greatest Atlantean of history.' "'Atlantean?' echoed Nelson while his mind groped frantically in the recess of his memory. Atlans! Atlantis! A great light broke upon him. The lost Atlantis! Great God! Had he stumbled upon a remnant of that powerful people whose fabled empire had been drowned ten centuries ago in the cold waves of the Atlantic? Ay, the yellow-haired warrior continued as though reading his thoughts, Long centuries ago this valley was peopled by those who escaped the great cataclysm which ended the mother country. Later came another race, barbarian wanders like thyself. He bowed for all the world like a courtly English gentleman. But methinks thou art in need of food and sustenance? You bet I'm hungry, was Nelson's emphatic reply. I'm one short jump of starvation, and the D.T.'s. But hold on a minute, he cried. I'm looking for a friend of mine. He went by here, didn't he? I, A crafty expression Nelson did not like crept into Hero Giles Hudson's face, as he solemnly inclined his head. "'For the nonce, fair sir, thy companion is hale and sound. I beg your patience.' With a quick gesture the Atlantean raised his dolphin-shaped horn and blew three short blasts, while Nelson, in sudden alarm, cocked his rifle and brought it in line with the other's chest. The glittering officer saw the motion, but made no effort to move from the line of sights. "'Thy gesture avails not,' said he with stiff courtesy. "'When Hero Giles gives his word, it stands good, though Heliopolis and the Empire of the Atlans fall.' One by one half a dozen spearmen appeared, all obviously very frightened and only moved by an apparently Spartan discipline. Promptly they saluted, whereupon the hero, as his title appeared to be, uttered a number of brief commands in some guttural language entirely unintelligible to the dazed aviator. Presently a strange column appeared, composed of some fifteen or twenty disarmed men, marching between a double rank of heavily equipped hoplites. As they drew near, they clasped imploring hands, and evidently begged for mercy from the stern, tight-jawed figure at Nelson's side. Contemptuous and unhearing the prisoners' piteous pleadings and lamentations, Hero Giles scowled upon them, and deliberately turned his back. "'What are they?' inquired Nelson, vaguely alarmed. "'Enemies?' Yes. There was a certain bitter savagery in the speaker's voice. These are the dauntless defenders of Atlans who ran at the report of thy weapon. Presently they die. It was useless to interfere. The horrified aviator knew it, and watched with compassionate eyes while the condemned soldiers were ranged in a single white-faced line. They remained silent now, seeming to have found courage now that hope was dead. Upon brief command from a subaltern, the guards wheeled about and retreated perhaps twenty yards down the passage. There they halted, glittering eyes peering through the slots in their helmets to fix themselves upon the rigid prisoners, who stood numbly resigned to death. With surprising speed each member of that weird firing squad 
detached a brazen grenade from his belt, then threw back his arm in exactly the same attitude as a bomb-throwing doughboy. Then there came a short, sharp command, and some fifteen or twenty grenades bobbed through the air to crash on the stones at the feet of the victims. His head swimming with repulsion at the slaughter, Nelson beheld a curious sight. It seemed that from the broken grenades appeared a yellowish-green vapor which sprung of its own accord upon the silent upright rank. In an instant it settled like falling snow upon the doomed soldiers. For a breathless fraction of a second they stood, eyes wide with horror, then collapsed, kicking and struggling, as men do under the influence of gas. "'Horrible!' gasped Nelson. "'What was in the bombs?' "'A vapor,' explained Hero Giles shortly, "'a fungus vapor, which, falling upon exposed flesh, instantly invades the blood, and multiplies by millions. See?' He pointed to the nearest dead man, and Nelson, with starting eyes, watched a yellowish growth commencing to sprout from the dead man's nostrils. Swiftly the poisonous mold threw out tiny branches, spreading with astounding rapidity over the skin, until in less than a minute after the grenades had exploded, the whole tumbled heap of dead were covered with a horrible yellow-green fungus growth. "'Thou seest?' Hero Giles demanded. "'Powerful, is it not? It is against the fungus vapor we wear this body armor, made from the skin of a small lizard which inhabits our mountains.' Shocked and appalled, Nelson watched the retreat of the solemn, silent execution party. Other soldiers fell to unconcernedly stripping their fallen comrades of equipment. Then, to Nelson's horrified surprise, two hideous allosauri reappeared, shepherded by some six or eight keepers. Once the horrible creatures were released, they pounced upon the dead and, snarling horribly, commenced to rend and devour the corpses. Too shaken to comment or to make the protest he knew to be futile, Nelson followed the stalwart English-speaking officer into a bronze door set in the cavern wall and up a short flight of stairs, into what appeared to be a guard-room, where food and wine were immediately set before the famished aviator. "'Yea,' Hero Giles was saying as he set down a beautiful goblet and wiped the last traces of wine from his beard, "'We will soon o'ertake thy friend.' He was but little hurt, and thou wilt assuredly join him in judgment before our great Emperor, Altorius the Twenty-Second, at Heliopolis, our capital. Heliopolis? mumbled Nelson, his mouth full of delicious stew that seemed to be made of veal. Heliopolis? How far away is it? A hundred leagues more or less, the other smiled, almost a third of the distance up this great valley. One hundred leagues? Three hundred miles? then we won't be there for several days." The hero's deep, rather ominous laughter rang out in the little rock-hewn chamber. "'Days?' he jeered. "'Days? Art thou mad? In two hours from the time we board the tube-road thou shalt learn thy fate from his serene highness.' "'What?' Nelson's sunken and bloodshot gray eyes widened while his jaw dropped incredulously. "'One hundred leagues in two hours?' As I remember, there are about three miles to a league, so a hundred leagues in two hours means one hundred and fifty miles an hour. Why, that's utterly impossible. The twentieth century limited doesn't go half that fast." Several enormous emeralds, set into the other's bronze cuirass, glittered softly, and the hero's cold blue eyes hardened as his hand sought the grenade belt. 
Impossible? Dost thou doubt my words, sirrah? With an effort he controlled himself. Nay, thou shalt see for thyself ere long. The tube-road runs from Heracles to Heliopolis. Thou canst trace its course on this map here on the wall. The dog-born devils of Jarmuth have no such means of travel, continued the Atlantean, with a touch of smug pride that reminded Nelson of a small-town middle-westerner speaking of the rightest, tightest little town west of the Mississippi. Nelson found it extremely weird to be sitting there in a heavy armchair, drinking good red wine with a fierce armor-clad warrior who wore sandals, sword, and a war-cloak such as might have graced the limbs of Alexander of Macedon. But with the food and rich warm wine he felt blood, strength, and self-confidence pouring back into his weary body. "'Jarmuth?' he inquired. "'What is Jarmuth?' At his question the domineering predatory face across the table darkened, and the scar on his cheek flamed red as a scowl of hatred gripped Hero Giles's visage. "'Jarmuth!' snarled the hero, and his great hand closed like a vice. "'Jarmuth! A nation of treacherous, gold-adoring cannibals, whose countless hordes spawned in the hot lowlands, ever threaten our frontiers. I tell thee, friend Nelson, the dog-sired Jeroboam will not rest until mighty Heliopolis lies in a heap of smoking ashes. Evidently, thought Nelson, taken aback at the other's vehemence, this lad's English only in speech. I guess he's all Atlantean outside of that. Warming to a fiercer pitch, the other fixed his guest with a smoldering gaze. Jarmuth lies beyond Apidanus, the boiling river and is the home of a savage horde whose horrid rites in Jezreel, the capital, stink as an offence to Saturn and the high gods. "'Why, mark you,' the warrior-prince continued, interrupting his tirade to gulp a goblet of wine, Five years ago, by treachery, they seized the beauteous Altara, sister of our gracious emperor, and upon the annual feast of Beelzebub, that vile demon they worship, the dark dogs, would have sacrificed and devoured her according to their rights, had not our emperor dispatched a ransom of six fair maidens to take her place. Every year since then Jeroboam has exacted that same tribute. Every year their princes and priests gorge themselves on the tender white flesh of our fairest and noblest maidens. But this tribute must end. The augurs have told us so. Help will come from the ice-world. Hero Giles brought crashing down on the table a brawny fist, on whose wrist was fixed a bright gem-studded bracelet. Horror-stricken, Nelson nodded. "'It is for this alone,' continued the hero somberly, "'that thy life and that of thy friend have been spared.' "'So? I didn't notice,' broke in Nelson, "'that you particularly went out of your way to preserve my health a while back.' The heavy golden head shook slowly, and a grim smile played about those thin, cruel lips. Nay, but I could have had thee slain. Come, as we go to the tube-road, I'll show thee how much thou liest in the hollow of this my hand. He thrust out a broad, powerful palm. Forget not, fair sir. At any moment I, or my imperial master, may choose to close that hand. Perhaps— stated Nelson, feeling it imperative to keep up his pose of independence, but it might just happen that your hand would close on a porcupine, and so far from hurting the porcupine, it would be your hand that would be hurt. 
Sirrah! The Atlantean sprang to his feet, and one hand shot to the grip of his ponderous bronze sword. But even more quickly Nelson snatched up his rifle, a thin smile playing on his lips. "'Drop it!' he snapped. "'Control yourself, or I'll plug you like that allosaur. Be reasonable, can't you? We both want something, and perhaps can help each other gain it.' The taut, menacing figure in armor relaxed, and with a gentle clank of accoutrement, Hero Giles resumed his seat. Prithee pardon me, he apologized ungraciously. I was ever a hothead, and there is much in what thou sayest. We wish to force an end to this annual tribute, if not to regain our beloved Altara. And thou, his heavy golden eyebrows shot up, and thou, what dost thou wish? Nelson lowered the menacing barrel. I want the return of Richard Alden, free passage back to that spot where he was captured, and plenty of food and help should we need it. If I aid you in one, you must promise me in the other." "'Aye,' returned the other doubtfully, "'but I myself can pledge naught save thy immediate safety. Tis for our imperial majesty to say whether both thou and thy friend shall live, or whether ye shall feed our war-dogs. Come now, we must go to Heliopolis.' Picking up his heavy bronze helmet, the Atlantean prince set it on his yellow head and waited impatiently for Nelson to drain the last of his wine. Then, with a swirl of his green cloak, he vanished through the rock wall, closely followed by a singularly distracted and alarmed aviator. End of chapter 2